0: Well, in the book of John, in chapter 20, in verses 30 and 31, it says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in His book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. That word believe, I think especially when you get around like the holidays, people will often talk about believing as into something, well, you just have to believe and usually kind of the context of that is as well but what about this and what about this and i have these different questions and and it kind of comes down to sometimes it's just presented as well you just got to kind of ignore that stuff and just believe it's a big popular theme around the holidays you can find it on plaques and different things that you decorate your house with just believe and it's often kind of framed in that kind of an idea this is these are other things that i know but this is the this is what i believe well within the gospel of john believing is a primary theme in fact in this 21 chapters it's They'll use the word believe 98 times. That is his main point. In fact, that is the the continual point as you go through the Gospel of John is that we need to believe. The whole purpose in his writing the book is that we would come to a point of faith, that we would believe in him. Now it's written by somebody who is a very good source. John was there. In fact, when you look at the epistle that he wrote uh, toward the end of the Bible, which is 1 John, when you look at how he starts off that, he he talks about how he's not writing about things that he's unfamiliar with. He's writing about things that he's very familiar with. In fact, all the apostles were. He says, that which is from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes. Notice that's going to be the primary theme through these several verses. The things which we have heard we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Just like Peter does in one of his epistles, he says, look, these aren't cleverly invented myths, we were there. We saw these things that we're telling you about. And John's doing the same thing. He's saying, look, our our ears heard this. Our eyes saw this. Our hands touched Him. We were eyewitnesses. We were there. We know these things. And he says, that's what I want to communicate to you. Then as you look in these two verses that we just read in chapter 20 as he's coming closer to the end of the book, but he says, look, Jesus did many other signs, but you know what? I'm just recording these ones for you. And what is the purpose? What is the reason that he's recording these ones for us? But these are written so that you may believe. He wants two things to happen. He says, I want you to believe. And then through that belief, you will experience life. You will have eternal life. That's his whole goal in the book, is to bring us to a point of believing in Christ, recognizing him for who he is, and embracing him, which brings us eternal life. Now, as we kind of see this book unfold, and it is a it is a rich book, a very deep book, that's just the path that he's following. And we're going to get to see who Christ is, who different people proclaim him to be, who he himself says he is, who John the Baptist says he is, who different crowds of people say that he is. And you're going to see signs. That word used 16 times in the book of John. He uses that to talk about the miracles and the things that Jesus was doing. Anything that was a miracle that Jesus was doing, John referred to it as a sign. Why? Because a sign points to something. There's a message to it. Those are like road signs. You know, you're driving down the road and you'll see a sign that has a little squiggly and an arrow on the end. means as you go this direction, you're about to hit a bunch of curves. When we used to drive through the passes back in Washington, there were areas that said, watch out for falling rocks. And one time we came around a corner, and there was a rock about the size of our car right in the highway. So it's good to pay attention to the signs. And so signs indicate something, and they communicate. And that's exactly what all Jesus' miracles were: is they were they were signs. They were they were communications to us about who Jesus is. So now as we look at the unfolding of, of this book, we're going to look at several different things. One of the things that we're going to see is that in him bringing us to that point of belief, he deals first and throughout the book with proclamations. Statements about who Jesus is. And we see it first of all in his opening proclamation at the very beginning in the first two verses of the book of John. He says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. What does it point to about Christ? He was already there in the beginning. Who was there in the beginning? Well, we go back to Genesis 1. There was only one person there in the beginning, and that was God, and that's exactly where John goes with it. In the beginning, He was with God, and He was God. Definite declaration of at least two parts of the Trinity right there. So we see the the divinity and the eternal nature of Christ. And then it's kind of interesting because in the rest of the first chapter of John, He's just going to let kind of other people tell the story. In chapter 1 verse 29, John the Baptist sees Jesus coming by and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. When you get to verse 34 of the same chapter, he says, I have seen and borne witness, still being John the Baptist, that this is the Son of God. Verse 36, I think he again refers to him as the Lamb of God. Verse 38, Jesus turned and saw them following Him. And who the them are at this point is there were disciples that were following John the Baptist. And John the Baptist points to Christ, and so they, they turn and start following Christ because John the Baptist pointed them that direction. Jesus turned to them, and they turned to Him and said to Him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And so they identify Him at least as a, a good teacher at that point. And then in verses 40 and 41, Andrew, it says, One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means the Christ. And then also with Philip in verses 44 and 45, it says, Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And in verse 49, it says, "Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And in John 1.51, this is actually a statement of Christ Himself. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And so when you look just in the first chapter, John comes out and says, look, this is the one that was with God. He was God. He was there from the beginning. Then he lets other people tell who he is. He's the Messiah. He's the one that Moses wrote to us about and the prophets wrote to us about. He is the Christ. He is the Son of God. He is the King of Israel. This is the one we've been waiting for. He started His Gospel very appropriately because the rest of the Gospel of John, He sets out to prove that. Especially in the first 12 chapters. And so there's these different proclamations that are by different people saying, this is the Christ. This has got to be the guy. Jesus Himself makes a lot of proclamations within this gospel about who he is and and this gospel is unique now this gospel the gospel of john we refer to as the autoptic gospel the reason is because it kind of stands alone the other three gospels matthew mark and luke they share a lot of similar information a lot of the things you find in matthew you can find in mark or luke or both 93 percent of what you find in john is only in john it's an amazing book. But we find within it, we find different proclamations from Jesus. Jesus would use the word, I am. Now that stands out to us because when you think back to Moses, God tells him, I want you to go down and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. First you you're supposed to go talk to the elders and then to Pharaoh. And Moses says, well, when I go down and tell them that you sent me, who, who, who do I say sent me? And God says, you tell them, I am has sent you. I am, the self-existent one, the one that just exists in and of himself. He's not so-and-so son of somebody else. He is just the I am. That is a term for God. That is an expression of who he is. Well, Jesus will use several I am statements, about seven of them, regarding himself. In John chapter six, verse thirty five, he'll say, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world in eight twelve. I am the gate for the sheep in ten seven. I am the good shepherd in ten eleven. I am the resurrection. I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 14.6 I am the true vine in 15 and 1. And, and you know what's really cool about this list? John's going to take Jesus and put Him right next to several prominent institutions, right? He's going to put Him next to a wedding. And he's going to show how Jesus is really the reality behind the joy of a wedding. He's going to bring Him into the temple. And Jesus is going to clear that place. Say, this is supposed to be a house of prayer and you've made it a den of thieves. The temple is a picture of Him. You see, the temple was kind of where, where heaven meets earth, right? Where, where people could go to experience the presence of God. Jesus now is the presence of God. He's also going to come across Nicodemus, who He referred to as the teacher in Israel. And what they needed was not just a teacher, but what they needed was to be born again. And He's going to explain that to Nicodemus. He's also going to go out alongside of a well dug by Jacob when Jesus has a discussion with the woman at the well, she says, are you greater than our father Jacob? And so he's going to come along these basic institutions in the Jewish life and he's going to show how Jesus is the reality behind all of those things. But then he's going to go on also to the feasts, to the different festivals that they have. He's going to record them healing somebody on the Sabbath. Why? Because the Jews are going to get all in an uproar about that. What are you doing working on the Sabbath? And he's going to say, my father works and I'm working. Drawing a connection between him and God. Not only the Sabbath, but He's going to deal with the Passover feast and the Tabernacles feast. Now remember, Passover feast is when they got delivered out of Egypt and brought over through the Red Sea. And then they're brought out into the wilderness. And then they're out in the wilderness for 40 years because they refused to go in the Promised Land. And then they're going into the Promised Land. Now the Passover feast celebrates them coming out out of Egypt. Because God gives them the Passover feast put the blood on the doorposts and celebrate this feast while he came through and killed all the firstborn of Egypt, but rescued the firstborn or the houses of the people of Israel. And so it commemorates that day of them coming out of Israel and into the wilderness where they would wander with God for 40 years. The Feast of Tabernacles, the word tabernacles means tent. Tents. It's also called the Feast of Booths. And in the Feast of Booths, Israel would come out of their house and live in a tent. they pitched tents in their yards. People would travel to Jerusalem, pitch tents around Jerusalem, and they would live in tents for a couple of weeks while they worship God, just to remember the time where their nation lived in tents as they wandered in the wilderness with God. And you know what? It's an amazing thing because what did God do? He brought them out of Egypt into the wilderness. And in the wilderness, He miraculously provided for them with food, manna, which means what is it? Water from a rock. And so God miraculously provided food for them in the wilderness. You know what? It's right around those feasts that Jesus would take a group and lead them out of town and up onto a hill out into the wilderness. And He would miraculously feed 5,000 people. What is John doing with that? He's drawing a parallel. Look at the history of Israel. God pulls them out of Egypt and out into the wilderness and miraculously takes care of them. Jesus does the same thing with these people. And then not only that, but at the different elements of these feasts. At the Passover feast, Jesus would stand up and say, I'm the true bread that comes down from heaven. That bread was just a picture of me. And then also with the Feast of Tabernacles, they had a couple different ceremonies that went through. One dealing with water. They'd go out and draw water out of this well and bring it in and pour it out and and sing this little song about it as they went. And Jesus would stand up in that feast and say, If any man is thirsty, let him come to Me. And out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then not only that, they also in that feast during that week, they had a candle lighting ceremony and Jesus would stand up in the midst of that and say, I am the light of the world. And so these proclamations over and over. A lot of these I am proclamations are given right in the middle of these feasts that they had celebrating the history. And Jesus takes the whole history of the nation of Israel and John, through recording it, presents to us that Jesus is the answer to the whole history of the nation of Israel points to Him. He is proclaimed to be that, that I am. The One who was in the beginning with God was God. He is the Son of God. He's the Son of Man. He's the King of Israel. He is the Messiah, the One that Moses and the prophets spoke about. He is all of this. You know, he would use the word I am in a couple other places, actually more than I'm going to show you here, but in chapter 8, verse 24, he says, I told you that you would die in your sins unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. He kind of repeats the same thing to him four verses later. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. Probably the place where it's the most clear is in verse 58 and 59 of chapter 8. It says, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Why do they pick up stones to throw at him? Because in their mind, they're not accepting that he was God in the flesh. And so for Him to say that He was God in the flesh, He just committed blasphemy worthy of death. And so they pick up stones, and they're going to stone Him for saying, I am He. There's no question in their mind that He just claimed to be the I am that Moses had revealed to Him. And so we see that He calls us to believe, and as He calls us to believe, He shows us a lot of proclamations. A lot of places where Jesus makes these proclamations about Himself. A lot of places where other people make these proclamations about Christ. Then also He gives with that to proof. He gives him a bunch of proof. And He does that through the use of what I, what I said before, signs. He gives, does all these miracles. He's going to do about seven, eight different miracles that are recorded in John. And He's going to show us those miracles and, and he say, look, this is the proof. I'm saying that Jesus is the Son of God and this is what supports it. Well, back to the verse where we started. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of all. But why is He doing this? So that we would believe, to prove to us that, that this is the case. There were a lot more signs that he did as well that aren't being recorded. In chapter 21, and verse 25, he's going to go on to say, there are also many other things that he, Jesus did, were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. You know, somebody has estimated that if you read all the things that Jesus did in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, if you read all that out loud, an average person could read that in about three hours. But Jesus ministered with these people for three years. There's a lot of things that Jesus did that we don't know about and will not know about, unless He tells us in heaven or something. But these ones, He says, are recorded specifically for us to bring us to that point of belief. Now, we see His use of the word signs. It starts in John chapter 2.11. It's the very first miracle that Jesus did. And it says this, the first of His signs Jesus did in Canaan and Galilee and manifested His glory and His disciples believed in Him. When you get to chapter 4, He heals an official's son. It says this was now the second sign that Jesus did when He had come from Judea to Galilee. And the things that He was doing, they were signs to indicate who He was, so it would elicit a response from the people that, were, that would see those signs. In John chapter 2 and verse 23, it says, Now when He was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in His name when they saw the signs. That He was doing. So see, the signs are working. They're communicating who Jesus is and and people are coming to faith. They are believing in Him. In fact, even that's what prompted Nicodemus when you get to John chapter 3. Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel and one of the Pharisees, comes to Jesus. And why does he come? Because of the signs. He says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And so he's just going to demonstrate all these different signs as proof of who He is. And what are those signs? Well, changing water into wine at the wedding. The healing of the official son, it says, was the second one. The healing of the, of the invalid, the crippled person at the, at the pool of Bethesda. Feeding of 5,000. Walking on water. Healing the blind man. Raising Lazarus from the dead. And the greatest of all, His own resurrection. So he gives us plenty of proof. He says, look at all these things that happen. He walks on water. He raises the dead. He heals the sick. He, He causes a blind person to see. These are proof of who he is. Well, then he goes from there to discussing his plan. Now this is when we hit chapter 13. Chapter 13 is that time where he sets aside time just to be with his disciples. His disciples need some teaching. Because their whole life they've been raised to look forward to the coming of the Messiah. And He's going to come and He's going to kick out Rome and He's going to set up His kingdom and His empire. And that kingdom's coming, but it's just not yet. And so they're going to need uh, some understanding of well, what's it going to be like. And so this is when Jesus starts takes them aside and He starts to tell them, I'm leaving soon. And they start to get stressed about that. And He says, "You, it's okay, you know where I'm going. And they say, no, we don't. We really don't. And that's when He tells them, I am the way, the truth and the life. (laughs) I am the way there. And all through this passage, He begins to show him what it's going to be like while He's gone. He gives him an example, washing one another's feet. This is what you're going to be doing while I'm gone. It's not like the world, where in the world, the boss is the one who calls the shots and everybody serves them. It's not like that. This is like, you want to be great in my kingdom? You be the one washing the feet. You be the one serving one another with a selfless attitude. He says, not only that, but it's going to be good for you that I go. Why? Because Jesus can only be one place at a time. Jesus says, I'm gonna go, the Holy Spirit's gonna come. He will be with you because He will be in you. And He's gonna explain the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's gonna come, He's gonna convict the world of sin. He's gonna guide you into all truth. He's gonna show you things to come. Kind of forms a nice outline of what we have in the Bible, which the Holy Spirit inspired. The Holy Spirit is going to equip you, give you the ability to abide in me, John chapter 15. He says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. And you need to abide in me. And because of abiding in him, we get the nourishment that we need and we produce fruit in our lives. So he says it's going to be a lot like that. The Holy Spirit is going to come and he's going to be in you and you're going to live for me and in me and produce fruit in your life and you're going to serve one another selflessly. He talked about the great commandment, the new commandment I give you, love one another as I have loved you he prays for them, when he gets to chapter 17, we have the prayer. Ask God, He says, let them be one. One with each other. One with us as I am in you. And you are in me. Let us be in them. And experience that oneness. And this is the plan. And then we also see a reaction. John, as he goes through just this synopsis of Christ's ministry, we see all these proclamations of who Christ is and the proof of who He is. And then you just get to watch people react. You get to watch them hash it out Discuss it. Who is this guy? We're just going to go to a couple of spots. John chapter 7, verse 12, it says, And there was much muttering about Him among the people. While some said He is a good man, others said no, He's leading the people astray. But C.S. Lewis pointed that out pretty effectively. He said people out there that say Jesus is just a good teacher, he says that's not an option that's left open to us. Why? Because Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. He claimed to be God in the flesh. And so if you claim to be God in the flesh, but you're not, then it leaves two options. If you claim to be God in the flesh and you're not, then either one, you can be crazy. Because if you are not God, but you think you are God, then you're crazy. And that doesn't make a good teacher. A crazy person does not make a good teacher. If you claim to be God, and you know that you're not God, then you're not crazy, because you know, but um, you're a liar. Liars don't make good teachers either. And so C.S. Lewis pointed out, he says, look, there's only three options. He's either a liar, or he's a lunatic, or he is the Lord. He said, you can reject him as a liar, you can lock him up as a lunatic, or you can fall on your knees and worship him as Lord. He said, but I don't want to hear any foolishness about a good teacher. He did not leave that option open to us with the things that he claimed to be. And that's what, that's the discussion that we're seeing flow in the book of John. Who is this person? They said, some people said he, he's a good man. The other people actually rightly said, no, he can't be, he can't be a good man. Unless you're going to go all the way to Lord, he can't be just a good man. In John chapter seven, verse 26, it says, can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? Cause at first the authorities were shocked and appalled and they wanted to get rid of him, but they weren't sure how to do it yet. And so they're just kind of scrambling. And everybody's like, he's teaching openly in the temple and nobody's putting a stop to it. Do they really know? They, they really they know He's the Christ, right? In verse 31, it says, Yet many of the people believed in Him and they said, When the Christ appears, will He do more signs than this man has done? If you look at the other signs that we know of, what are things that Jesus did? Jesus showed power over nature. He could calm a storm just by speaking. He could walk on water. Jesus showed power over sickness. He he could give somebody sight that had never had sight in his life and he was 40 years old. He could heal people that couldn't walk. He could cause people with leprosy to be clean. He even raised the dead on a few different occasions. He was in charge of sickness. He was in in charge of life itself. He was in authority over life. He was in authority over the spirit world because he cast out demons. He could feed thousands of people with one boy's lunch. He could send Peter fishing and pay their taxes with the coin found in the mouth of the fish. When you think of all the different signs, miraculous things that He did. And that's what these people were saying. Just like the Apostle Paul later when he would be arrested and on trial, he would say before the court, you know about this. This wasn't done in the closet. You know what I'm talking about. These things were done in the open. And these people were like, when the Christ comes, do we really expect Him to do more than what this guy's done? This guy's got to be Him, right? The reason they were having a struggle is because their leaders weren't getting on board. Their leaders, the guy that were supposed to be teaching them about the Bible, the guys that were supposed to be pointing them to Christ, they weren't doing a good job of it. And they weren't on board. Why? Because they were envious for their own position. In John chapter 7 verses 40 and 41 says, when they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ, but some said, is Christ to come from Galilee? So they were just a little confused there, but could have been easily cleared up. You know, we see it really come into a head when we get to John chapter 11 verses 45 through 53. It says, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and seen what he did, so this is when He had gone with Mary to Lazarus' tomb and He raised Lazarus from the dead. That's what it's talking about. They had seen Him do this. Many of them believed in Him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. The Roman Empire kept close tabs on things. They didn't care if you had your gods. As they took over more and more places, they didn't care if you had your gods as long as you submitted to theirs, mainly the Caesar. But what the Roman people didn't tolerate was any uprisings. They had what was called the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. And it was an enforced peace. You will be peaceful. And so anybody that causes an uprising or a stir, they would deal with it quickly. In fact, on the temple, the temple itself... On one corner, up uh, up high on top of the wall, overlooking the temple, was a fortress, a fortress Antonia. And so they would have guards always up in the fortress Antonia, so that from that fortress they could overlook the proceedings of the temple. And that way, if any uprising started in Israel, because if you're going to start an uprising or a rebellion within Israel, chances are it's going to happen in the temple. They would be right there with the forces already to come down and put a quick end to it. You see that later on in the book of Acts when the Apostle Paul comes into the temple and a mob comes and tries to take him by force. The guards are there just, just like that. Just quickly. They're putting an end to whatever's starting here. See, that's what the leaders are worried about. They're worried about if everybody comes to believe in Jesus, if everybody's coming to believe that He's the Messiah, at some point they're going to get the big idea to put Him on the throne. Rome's not going to tolerate that. And they're going to come in and they're going to take away our position because Rome allowed them a certain amount of authority and he said if we can't keep the peace Rome won't let us have that authority and so they are adamant that they want to to get rid of Christ because he's going to cause a real problem for them the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation but one of them Caiaphas who was a high priest that year said to them you know nothing at all nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people not that the whole nation should perish. Now, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Well, John chapter 12, and verse 18. This is a little bit time later. Jesus separates with his disciples. Later comes back. And what happens is, when Jesus comes back, and so they do a big dinner, a big banquet in honor of Jesus... And they give Lazarus a prominent seat because here's the guy that raised him from the dead. Here's the guy that was risen from the dead. And so they're celebrating, they're celebrating Christ. And the religious leaders are fit to be tied. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard that he had done this sign, raising Lazarus from the dead. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. And they determine at that point, we gotta kill Jesus, we gotta kill Lazarus because he's getting attention to Jesus. I don't know why you think that you killing somebody that's already been risen back to life would be effective, but they did. And so, but the whole point is that was the reaction. And John just lets us watch the reaction. Very quickly, you begin to see that everybody with an honest look at who Christ is says, he's the one Moses and the prophets wrote about. He's the son of God. He's the king of Israel. He's He's the Messiah, the Christ. That's who He is. Why do we know that? Look at all the signs. They're pointing the way. We're just following the signs and they lead right to Him and to the fact that He is God on earth. And so the other people start to look a little bit foolish. They look a little bit petty. When the Christ comes, is He really going to do more than this, what we're seeing here? You're going to tell me in all the things that we see, this really isn't the guy? Oh, well, they have some incentive trying to keep their place of authority. They're trying to keep their position. It's politics. And lastly, we see the importance. Now the importance is at the beginning and the importance is at the end. It's hugely important. At the very beginning, we're going to go to John 1 and verse 12 and 13. It just got done saying, He came to His own and His own did not receive Him. They did not welcome Him. To all who did receive Him, who believed in His name... He gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That's the priority of this. Why does John talk about believing 98 times in this (laughs) Gospel? Because if we believe, we have life. If we don't believe, we're lost and lost forever. So you see, John's purpose is big. He records Jesus proclaiming who He is, proving who He is, And other people's reactions to who He is. But you know what the real point of it is? He says, I'm writing it for you. So every time we read it, as we go through it, He's writing it for you. He's writing it for me. He's saying, look, I was there. I saw it. I handled it. I heard it. And I'm passing it on to you. With enough proof to show you who Jesus Christ is. So that you can believe. So that you can have eternal life.